Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Ryan. I'm sitting in a van in Missoula, Montana. That's traffic you hear going by, most likely. I'm uh, just outside. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm outside of Clyde Coffee, across the street from Bridge Pizza, where I had some delicious pizza last night. Um, And Clyde Coffee has a line out the door, but they do have very fast Wi-Fi. Hence my presence. Recording this in the van, and then I'm going to go in and upload it. Um, Starting uh, on the 7th, Anya Katz and I will be teaching a workshop in Whitefish with Cameron and Melaine Shane, who are some incredible human beings, capable of amazing feats physical feats uh i've seen them do things that uh i wouldn't have thought a human body could do but what do you know they can do it they do these incredible yoga movement um martial arts stuff and we're going to somehow combine our approaches to life and teach a workshop there for a few days so that'll be interesting as you know, I'm not a big workshop teacher, so uh, that'll be a challenge. But we're doing it as a team, so it won't all be on me. So that'll make it better. I am not 100%, I have to admit. I got COVID a couple of weeks ago, and um, it kicked my ass. It kicked my ass in creative ways. It wasn't just an ass whooping. It was like... It played with me the way cats play with mice sometimes. It's like, yeah, I'm going to make you sick, but I'm going to do it in interesting ways. I'm going to give you pains in parts of your body that you haven't thought about in years. My kidneys hurt. My balls hurt. It was like, why Why are my kidneys and my balls hurting? What's going on here? I had these weird headaches dreams that that became hallucinations of frustration it was just like i would have this loop dream about needing to submit some form but in order to submit the form you had to go to this other office and get a permit to request the form but the person in the office wasn't there but they would be back later but you need the form before lunch but they're not coming back till after lunch so maybe you need to go to some other office to get some other thing and just looping 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 all night long what a weird waste of brain yeah and then at one point i decided to take a a shower. We were already in the van. That was another thing. Decided to continue the road trip. I thought when the symptoms kicked in, I thought, oh, I've already had this for a while and this is like the end of it. I don't I don't remember why I thought that, but I did. I guess I'd had a headache, a weird headache for 
a while and um, took a COVID test because I was going to be around some vulnerable people. And lo and behold, the COVID test came back positive, but I wasn't feeling so terrible at that point. So I thought, okay, well, this is the end of it. So we're going to take off in the van as scheduled. Well, ended up spending that first night in the van at a truck stop somewhere in the Mojave Desert. The temperature never went below 92 degrees all night long. So we were basically in a fucking tin can in an oven all night. Not a good way to uh, slide into COVID. Then at some point, a few days later, (laughs) excuse me, I decided to take a shower. And I have this portable shower thing. And I filled up the, the bucket with water and got the shower running and as soon as I stopped taking the shower and I was still wet I started just shivering like a lunatic like I had no control and normally I mean I'll get in the ice bath bath with Wim Hof I'll jump into every every fucking river stream lake I don't care I'm fine but it was like my internal fire had gone out I had no chi. I had no yang. I had no life force. Very strange. Anyway, maybe I'll talk about it more in a in aroma, although I can't imagine it's very interesting for you. Um, but it's unlike any disease I've ever had, any illness, any experience. It felt more like being colonized or parasitized it felt like like this virus was getting into all sorts of different systems in my body it wasn't just like okay we're gonna fuck up your throat for a week and and then you'll you know spit out a bunch of green goo and you'll be fine no it was like throat like I said kidneys my balls my muscles my joints my head and then like weird sensation things like colors look different it was like being high sometimes um sounds were different sensations i never lost my sense of taste or smell but i can certainly understand how people do because it it definitely got into my perceptual systems very strange interesting Definitely interesting. I would not recommend it. Not interesting enough to go out and get it. But if you can avoid it, do. I fucking avoided it for two years, apparently. I don't know. Maybe I had it and the symptoms were very mild earlier and I just didn't notice it. But in any case, I fucking definitely had it this time. Do not recommend it. All right. My guest this week is Deborah Eden Tull. She is a really interesting woman. She... Uh, Spent years at a Buddhist uh, monastery learning to become a monk. Uh, I think she said she was like in silent retreat for years. Um, Eventually left that, uh, has become a teacher and an author. Her book that we discuss in this conversation is called Luminous Darkness, an engaged Buddhist approach to embracing the unknown. Um. 
that's what attracted me to this conversation with her, uh, that the opportunity to discuss aspects of the sort of Americanized approach to Buddhism that I sometimes feel lack nuance um, because Americans, oh, Americans, you crazy, silly, marvelously strange people, uh, we tend to package everything as some kind of shortcut to nirvana you know everything is like you're gonna get incredible abs in only four weeks or you're gonna you know your dick's gonna get bigger and women are gonna love you or you're gonna you know whatever whatever the fuck it is america some american somewhere has got some bullshit that they want to sell you that's supposedly gonna give it to you and America, <laughs> sorry, God, I keep coughing. This is terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, and I, I believe in its essence, Buddhism is about embracing the darkness, not eliminating the darkness from your life. And yet I think that the Americanized, commodified versions of Buddhism that I keep coming up against... Um, seem to be much more oriented toward promising some sort of nirvana and happiness and blissful, you know, a guide to blissful existence. How many people are selling blissful existence on their fucking Instagram accounts? Anyway, uh, what I respected about Deborah's approach, Eden, I guess she goes by Eden, her middle name, uh, Eden's approach to her teaching <laughs> is that she is embracing the darkness and sees the darkness as a source of illumination, as counterintuitive as that may be. And I definitely resonate with that. Uh, I think the darkness is essential and it's it's where much of the learning takes place. You know, even plants need to rest at night. 24-hour sunlight is not good for plants. Those of you who are professional growers or gardeners or whatever know what I'm talking about. Um, it's all about the cycles. It's all about the inhalation, the exhalation, the light and the dark, the life and the death, the growth and the decay. That's what it's about. That's how it happens. And trying to eliminate any part of that because we decide it's unpleasant or uh, we just don't like the feeling breaks the whole system. I've said this before, what a revelation it was to me when Casilda explained to me that antidepressants are misnamed. They're not antidepressant, they're anti-emotion. They're anti-feeling pills. And so, yes, they can mitigate those deep, deep lows, but at the price of the highs. They just narrow the band. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a place for that. Sometimes 
the lows are low enough that any price is worth paying, including eliminating the highs for a while. Um, but don't kid yourself. There's no selective rebalancing. There's no take away the bad, and uh, it's not going to cost the good. It always does. Anyway, that's my sermon for today. Labor Day, September 5th. Sending out lots of love to the laborers. We're all laborers of one sort or another, I suppose. But Labor Day, America has Labor Day September 5th because the powers that be were afraid to allow American workers to celebrate the International Day of the Worker, which is May Day, May 1st, celebrated all over the world, except America, where we have our own very special, separate from the other workers of the world, Labor Day. This is just for American workers, you see. We don't want them fraternizing with foreign workers because that could lead to communism. Can't have communism. Those godless communists would come in here and give health care to poor people and educate children and give women the right to control their own bodies well we can't have that in america what the fuck is going on with america jesus i, I should not get started on that or i'll never post this america shit just keeps getting weirder over here i'll tell you what after almost a year outside of the country coming back is i don't know it's it's not like the frog in the water that gradually gets warmer it's like a frog i feel like a frog getting dropped into boiling water it's noticeable how insane this place is all right but i'm not going to talk about that i'm just gonna stop my yammering and uh go right into this conversation conversation with deborah eden tall the book is luminous darkness cool title and uh, I'm going to play a song for you called Dark Cloud by Chris Thomas King, who's a blues singer, guitarist, songwriter, performer. And I thought it was appropriate, not only because of the word dark, but because the blues itself is an entire art form built upon the premise that there is beauty to be found in suffering. Right? That's what blues is. So, I hope you enjoy this. Dark Cloud, Chris Thomas King, followed by Deborah Eden Tall. And uh, I will be back to you. Probably, I won't be doing anything uh, while we're doing the workshop. But, uh, yeah, five, six days, I will be back. And hopefully, I'll be feeling 100%. And uh, I will regale you with tales of travel and COVID and whatever the hell else comes to mind. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting my meandering, my meanderings. And um, however you do it, whether it's a positive review on iTunes or subscription on Substack, paid or free, or uh, just spreading the word to weirdo friends of yours who you think might uh, appreciate this podcast. Speaking of weirdo friends, before I say goodbye... I just want to remind you that uh, we are doing these get-togethers. If anybody is up around 
Whitefish, Montana. We're doing one in Kalispell on the 11th, 9-11. Yes, famous 9-11. No jokes about terrorism, please. Um, but you, <laughs> excuse me, you can go to Anya Kotz's um, website and she's got a spot on there where uh, we keep a, an updated um list of where we're going to be doing the get-togethers and uh you know our route which is basically i think it's going to be from whitefish when we finish this stuff here we might roll back down to southern montana around bozeman not sure we have some friends we wanted to see down there but not sure what their schedule is going to be um but in any case we're probably going to go west we're thinking bellingham seattle and then go down the coast um, and, uh, yeah, maybe Portland, maybe Bend, um, yeah, and get into that area. So uh, we'll see. So go to anyakots.com uh, and you'll see the uh, the link there for the, the meetups. So if you're on that route and you want to meet some other weirdos who listen to this podcast, God damn it. I got to stop talking because I keep coughing. Uh, other weirdos who listen to this podcast, please click on that and talk to us. And I'm going to stop talking because I don't want to cough in your ear. I'm sorry. Love you all. Hope you're doing well. And I'll talk with you again soon, hopefully without the coughing. Bye. <laughs>
Okay, great. Uh, so I guess the first thing we should do is thank your brother for putting this together. Huh? <laughs> well, thank Danny Toll for giving me the nudge to <laughs> go on the show. Hey, yeah. Danny, yeah. what's up? I know he does a lot of his painting while listening to your podcasts. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's always it's always great when I hear from people, you know, what they're doing while they listen. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's strange. I feel like a ghost or something, like I'm sort of hovering in the, you know, in the, in the background of somebody's life while they go about their daily life. It's, except, you know, they're more aware of me than I am of them, I guess. So it's sort of, I'm sure what you have to offer them and you're hovering is far better than the voices in their own head. Oh, so. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> Very debatable. Depends on who they are. Yeah. So listen, I've, uh, I've been reading your book the last few days and, uh, it, I, I've really enjoyed it. It's, I, I think it addresses something that a lot of these sorts of books miss, which is the value in the darkness, the value in the shadow and the difficulty. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of inspirational, spiritual writing about uh, life's challenges and all this, but I've, I personally get a little impatient when the message of the book is just sort of cheer up and fight through the difficulties and the obstacles. And I can't help feeling like um, there's a sort of sense of privilege there and a blindness to the reality of people's suffering. And um, I thought that your book was very good at acknowledging Well, not just acknowledging the darkness, but acknowledging that sometimes things don't work out in a way that is necessarily inspirational. Like you, you talk about um, the guy your mother befriended in prison, and uh, I forget his name, Benny or Bobby. Bobby, Bobby. Yeah. Um, and there's no, I mean, I really admired the fact you told that story and and there's no inspirational ending. It was just like, sometimes things don't go right. I think that takes some some real courage in this sort of a book to acknowledge that. So I just wanted to begin by thanking you for making some editorial decisions that probably were unexpected or not particularly easy. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, and I know that um, for me, if I feel like I'm in an environment or even a conversation or reading a book, that's a little too focused on the light or affirming that popular message that it's about trying to get to the light. There's a pushing away of the dark happening consciously or subconsciously. And I'm inviting people to really question what darkness actually is given humanity's had such a negative bias towards it for so long and yet so many spiritual traditions across the world and certainly in my experience and the experience of uh, everyone I'm close to darkness is uh, something that carries tremendous medicine darkness is one half of our experience one half of nature so really encouraging people to question assumptions about the darkness and learn to befriend it yeah yeah. Do you think 
that I, I know you're challenging a lot of these uh, preconceived notions of of darkness, and and you also go into um, institutional racism and how there's like the white and the black, and you know that sort of ripples out into areas of life that really have nothing to do with light or the absence of light. Uh, there are lots of metaphorical forms of darkness and lightness. Um, but it is accurate that the night contains more danger than the day, right? So there's something sort of primordial in us that uh, is frightened of predators in the night that we can't see because we don't have night vision. Uh, um, so do you think there's, there's some resonance um, that's unavoidable, that being afraid of the dark is something that sort of goes right down to our DNA? I can see there being resonance from just that, just what you've named. But I think bigger than that is something about darkness, physical and symbolic, really representing the unknown, the mystery, the unfamiliar, that which we can't see. And I think we've become a people who are so dependent upon and um, heavily rely on our ability to see, label and understand in order to feel okay, instead of recognizing that part of being human, whoever you are, whatever walk of life you're living, contains the unknown. And there's a way we can learn to meet the unknown with absolute curiosity and reverence and a great treasure, I would say, awaits us if we're willing to have that attitude. You with me? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and also darkness is is like silence in the sense that it's unfilled space. And I often think of that quote, I think it's uh, Pascal who said, all man's problems can be traced to his inability to sit quietly in a room alone, right? I, I feel like that the darkness frightens people because of what gets filled up when there's empty space in their heads. Yes, there's so much there. Uh, a primordial ancient fear of emptiness. And so I talk about how we label darkness as the absence of light, just as we label emptiness as the absence of something. And yet, ironically, you know, I'm a teacher of meditation and dharma. From that perspective and path, emptiness is not the absence of something. It's the presence of all possibility, uh, a fertile spaciousness that I believe each and every one of us longs for deeply because we live in a world that is so busy and distracted. It's when we learn to actually rest into that emptiness, relax into the darkness, that um, we, the words I would use are, remember who we actually are in relationship with the cosmos, with life. Does that make sense? It does, although it makes me wonder, who are we? Like you say, remember <laughs> who we actually are in relationship with the cosmos. Who, wh what's the answer to that? You know, there's so many uh, different uh, responses to that from wisdom traditions across the globe. But as far as I can tell, so many point to 
spiritual practice as a way of healing the myth of separation, this kind of fundamental myth that we're separate from life that plays out through can, people can experience it as kind of a subject object relationship to life when they're being guided by the conditioned mind instead of dropped into what I'm calling spacious presence awareness. And conversation we had in my meditation group last week, which was really about this, as it usually is, was about the remembrance of ourselves ultimately as awareness itself. Meditation is very much about stripping down the layers, peeling back the layers. So there's the layers of identity and all the conditioning and shit we received in terms of beliefs from how we were brought up, school, religion, media, etc., etc. And as that begins to strip away, peel away, there's a spaciousness and a freedom that begins to um, unfold where we realize, number one, what a relief. I'm not all of that. That's a part of me. I can meet all of that with compassion because it's a part of my experience. It's a part of the relative world I live in, but I also live in the absolute. And so when I say, who are we really, I'm pointing more to the absolute when you really strip all that down, what's here, when you really rest in presence or in the darkness or in empty space, what's here? And there's an experience of pure awareness that is so spacious, it includes everything. It doesn't judge anything, doesn't push anything away. It exists in this moment in time, but it feels timeless. So I'm using this language, hoping that People listening can kind of tie this into their own experience or maybe language that resonates more from their own practice. But it's really about stripping away some of our attachment to the relative world. Or I talk about it in the book also as the domain of light, who we are in the daytime. It's just one half of our experience and getting down to what's actually at the core of our being. And then when we're resting in that place, how do we live differently? because what's guiding us is simply more distilled and quite frankly, more compassionate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, where does sexuality fit into this? Do you see sexuality as being uh, energy of the light or energy of the darker realms? And of course, I we're using this non-judgmentally, the light and dark. Of course, and acknowledging that the sacred interplay of light and dark is the point and is evident and modeled in all the natural world. Yeah, um, I think that first I would suggest that there's both light and dark in sexuality. And I'll share that I'm coming from unique life experience of having had seven years of life as a monastic, or I was celibate, actually celibate for eight years, living in a silent Zen monastery in the wilderness, which talk about distilling our experience, peeling away the layers, <laughs> getting down to the absolute. That's a big part of it. And it served for a period of time uh, to be celibate, and then re-entered the realm of sexuality and eros when I left the monastery to live out in the world again. But even in the experience of celibacy, Eros played a huge role because as we're peeling away the layers of conditioning, 
we are allowing our vibrant aliveness, which is naturally here and always here, to become more and more potent. Yeah, we're opening up, I would say, our body as a portal to relational intelligence in ways that I think the modern world has been very conditioned to discount and diminish and put away, push away. The body is a portal to a quality of relational intelligence that we don't teach our kids in school these days. It can express through sexuality. It can express through our communication with nature, through how we communicate with our own heart, with one another. But we are badass in terms of our capacity to live in the field of interconnection. Sexuality for me is an important, vital part of that. So I think one thing I would underline is it's um, sad to me that many spiritual pathways hold kind of staunch rules around sexuality rather than letting each person find their own deep connection to Eros, which is life force, by the way. It's life force. And then see how that wants to express through them. Yeah. 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 That's always been an impediment for me of going deeper into any sort of um, Buddhist study. The sense I had that at least the teachers that I was reading or, or listening to when I was on a meditation retreat or something were presenting eroticism as a temptation to be avoided rather than uh, a source of nourishment and insight and connection. And it just felt uh, like instinctively wrong for me to ever turn away from that. You know, it was like someone telling me, don't drink water. It's bad for you. It's like, no, my body <laughs> is telling me that's not true. Um, recently, I've, I've mentioned that on the podcast a few times and people have written to me to say, well, that's not really the Buddhist teaching. That could be a misinterpretation, you know, of the original teachings, or that's a particular teacher who has that. Um, and I know there are traditions within Buddhism that, uh, within Tibetan Buddhism even, that um, uh, locate the path to wisdom through even excess, even, you know, drinking and fucking and dancing and partying. And like, that's the way you get closer to wisdom or enlightenment. So I know it's a nuanced issue, but for me personally, it was always like, ah, uh, I like, I want to be alive. So what was it like for you? You said you were seven years in the, as a monk, is yes. that seven years of, of silence and living alone in the mountains somewhere in the Sierras, right? You were in a monastery yes. in the Sierras? a Zen monastery in the Sierras, off the grid. And I had already lived off the grid for a number of years in intentional communities, so that just drew me. And we were living in silence. Uh, we came together just a few times a week for community Dharma meetings, I would call them. And we also led retreats there and um, had all kinds of projects going on the land, but mostly we're living in silence, which is a magical opportunity. I recommend for everyone to spend some time more than you have already in silence, which is, as you said, akin to some time in 
darkness. And you're asking me about the transition back into well, sexuality afterwards. Well, yeah. I, I'm just interested in, you know, how much silence is there a point where living in silence and solitude shifts in your experience shifted from enriching to weakening? You know what I mean? That's like a great question. Here's what I would say about that. For anyone on any spiritual path doing any spiritual work, you have to take responsibility for making sure that you are in touch with the inner authority, even if you're in a quite devoted relationship to a teacher, for instance, which I talk a lot about in the book, uh, because hierarchy coming into different spiritual traditions can cause great problems. You have to stay in touch with that part of you who knows like, oh, how this played out for me, for instance, was just a time when I could see, oh, I've actually now formed an identity out of being a monk. I'm actually playing it safe a bit through monasticism. I could stay the rest of my life when I'm 80 years old because a part of me loves everything about this life. And I can't. Uh, I need to, to go practice, live and teach in a different form. And it all unfolded through a lot of synchronicity, through a dream. But for me, I wanna go back to something you said earlier. First, this, it's hard to even put Buddhist teachings in one category because there are so many different lineages, so many different pathways, so many different teachers. So for instance, I teach every year retreats that are simply about sexuality and Dharma because when I was young, I wanted that awkward and I didn't see it. Instead, I saw a sex spirit divide, a body spirit divide, and it didn't ring true for me. It wasn't, it didn't feel authentic. Uh, there are many pathways and you mentioned Tibetan Buddhism as one, which has a whole extraordinary field of tantric practice. Um, I was just doing a meditation this morning that's very much about creating the openness within our um, sacral center and our hearts that can literally transform how we meet partnership, for instance. So there's many pathways within Buddhism. But one thing I really do feel is strong in not just Buddhism, because of the influence of patriarchy for so many years in human consciousness, but many religious traditions is this bizarre body spirit divide and sex spirit divide. And in my last book, which is about relational mindfulness, I write a bit about the kind of repression explosion duality it then creates around sexuality. So when I came back into the world, much more present, aligned with my essence, uh, free than I ever had been in my life, I noticed that in the culture, like, wow, this whole repression explosion thing, and it, it just didn't resonate for me. So I felt lucky to get to come back to it so aligned with my truth and kind of pave my own path free of conditioning. There's super weird conditioning out there around how you should be as a sexual person, what's right, what's wrong, what you should aim for, what, what bodies, all of it, right? And I share in my last book just a funny story because when I first came out of the monastery, I was like, you know, I think I'll take some time. Like first, I wanna just get used to living in this world of bright lights and, uh, noisy humans. And then I'll take my time to re-enter 
um, reconnect with my erotic intelligence out here. And then I went to see a chiropractor and I love to dance. That's always been one of the loves of my life. And I danced even when I was a monk. And so I asked if she knew the person behind the desk, if she knew of any just good places to dance once a week, like maybe a class, really good music was important to me. And I didn't know, but the place she pointed me to was actually a pole dancing class. And so the very first, <laughs> I walked down the street, knocked on the door and showed up to this pole dancing class with red walls and poles and sultry music. And it was fabulous because I had this moment of, oh my gosh, how have I gotten here? Like I just got out of the monastery <laughs> and I, I touched in with that spirit, which is my practice, absolute willingness and openness, beginner's mind. Right. And I said, let's do it. And I remember just weeping during the experience because a really good facilitator guided it. And it was really just about free erotic energy and the deep feminine, which is core to my being. So that was a great introduction back into that realm. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 See, I, I instinctively see no contradiction between spiritual practice and pole dancing and any, you know, it's like Emma, who was it? Emma, uh, I forget her name. One of the early, early 20th century feminist Emma Goldman, who said, if yes. I can't dance in your revolution, like, you know, I'm not going to be part of your revolution, right? It's, there has yes. to be joy in this process of, of moving toward enlightenment or wisdom or whatever we're moving toward. Otherwise, I, I, I feel like it's, I mean, I have a big problem with a lot of Americans approach to health, for example, um, because it's so stressful right? You have to take these supplements, you have to buy this, you have to do this workout, you have to have abs like you're 25, you have to, there's no acceptance of aging, there's no acceptance of the inevitable decay of the body, there's no, there's no, I mean, American cheese is all dead, you know, like, I like cheese that's alive, <laughs> stink is the point, you know? <laughs> well, and you're pointing so beautifully to another uh, symptom of pushing away the dark, the winter, the decaying, and again, the invisible and trying to keep it light, the new, uh, focusing on uh, creation instead of disintegration. Right. Life contains both, and we right. can live in a beautiful dance with both if we accept that. And I would just say that point you made about health, that's another way that this obsession with the rational mind and then even approaching our bodies instead of as the wilderness, approaching them with this rational mind trying to label and make sense. It's So in the book, I talk about the value and need for and darkenment alongside enlightenment, because any spiritual practice in order to be powerful, in order to be honest, has to address the context of its time, as well as the timeless teachings. And the context of our time contains, again, I'll underline, a dramatic body-spirit divide, a dramatic pushing away, I believe, of the physical body and the physical body as portal to consciousness and to relational intelligence. And so in today's world, like as we look at 
the impact of so many generations of patriarchy and disconnect from nature. I believe anyone practicing in today's world really values from being part of the heal healing of that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So just to remind people, the book is called Luminous Darkness. Um, and in the subtitle, it says something about an engaged Buddhist. What's the approach, subtitle? An engaged Buddhist approach to embracing the unknown. Okay. So engaged Buddhist. What does that phrase mean? This phrase points to um, Buddhist practice, spiritual practice, that's really oriented to acknowledging the pain of our, in our world, to acknowledging the isms in our world, to acknowledging the um, intersubjective conditioning in our world. That means the conditioned beliefs that have been passed down and infused our systems. So we can be not just doing our personal practice, but practicing on behalf of the collective. It's actually a form of spiritual activism, if okay. that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's sort yeah. of not shying away from political implications of a spiritual practice. You've got it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So when I first wanted to write a book, my first book, I contacted a friend of mine who worked in publishing and asked him for advice on, you know, who should I talk to? What steps should I take to try to write this book? And he said, I guess this is an old story people have heard a million times by now, but it was the first time I'd heard it. He said, Chris, no one should ever write a book unless they absolutely have to. And so when I speak to someone else who's written a book, I always want to say, why did you have to write this book? I love that story. So I'm grateful that you repeated it. And, uh, and I love that question. Yeah, I feel that personally, it's something I have not heard anyone else really point to and speak about. But I feel that darkness has been one of my greatest teachers and darkness, physical and symbolic, uh, metaphoric, has brought a tremendous amount of healing and more important vibrancy to my life. Right. Um, so much of my work has been about shadow work and folks, the joy of shadow work. There is so much joy in turning towards what we've labeled shadow and tried to push away and realizing that it's a tremendous source of energy and power and that exactly what we were labeling shadow is actually hidden power we were not yet ready to embody. <laughs> and so beyond shadow though, the darkness as the yin, restorative, slow, invisible aspect of nature. You know, I grew up in LA, world of bright lights and sunshine. And so I feel like darkness has kind of been knocking on my door, in a sense, quietly guiding me my whole life and been a part of my practice my whole life. And I started having some experiences in recent years. Um, I also have a practice of around animism or shamanism that really made it clear that there was a calling happening to write a book about this. At first, I was like, eh, got other things to do. This is a big topic. And it just kept occurring. So I 
let myself uh, listen deeply within and um, you know when you write a book there's a period where you're you're giving yourself to be a vessel for mm. whatever consciousness wants to bring through you around that topic so it was a beautiful experience yeah yeah it's interesting in, in your book you talked about uh, I, I forget the exact phrasing, but it was something about the power of receptivity and how darkness represented a, a receptive energy. And listening to you now, uh, you know, I've written two books and I experienced the first one as a receptive experience, I think. And the second one is more of a yang, you know, yang energy projecting experience. And, and, and it's just occurring to me that that might, might be why I enjoyed writing the first one a lot more than writing the second. Fascinating. I felt like <laughs> the first one, I was letting something come through me. And the second one, I was like trying to impose something on the outside world. I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that occurred to me when I was reading uh, Luminous Darkness. As I, as I said earlier, you include a lot of issues and, and you sort of um, face a lot of nuance and complications and, and difficult topics that I think a lot of books in this genre avoid. Um, you wrote about your father's death, for example, which I found very moving um, and how difficult that was for you and, and, and what a, a presence in your life, his absence uh, was. And, uh, and it, I started thinking, okay, the, the sort of acknowledgement of death, this turning toward uh, darkness, as you put it, turning toward things that scare us or um, that we prefer not to look at. And then I was, I was thinking about the sort of um, Buddhist aversion, at least in most schools of Buddhism I'm familiar with, the aversion toward eating meat. And I, I started thinking there, there might be some sort of a connection there. I, I have friends who are working on a documentary right now called Death in the Garden, which is all about how our discomfort around death informs our decisions around farming practices. I know you've done organic gardening and I don't know if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, but I wonder if you see our aversion to death and our aversion to sort of acknowledging that life eats life feeds into your thesis in some way. Interesting. This is such an, Interesting question. Let me uh, sit with this a minute and see what's arising. I mean, first, just the felt sense of what happens in a culture that pushes away death. For instance, I don't know if you've traveled to or spent time in India or other places where it's much more embraced the whole cycle of life and death as sacred. There's just such a recognition of wholeness and a permission to be human because we continually cycle through beginnings and endings, birth and uh, dissolution, all of it. So just 
feeling first in response to your question, like the impact on so many levels of a culture that pushes away uh, death or tries to resist it. And then aware that in my own practice, and certainly for those I teach, there's a way that the embrace of impermanence becomes this kind of like a welcoming fire that's under your seat at all times in a loving way saying, hey, this is it. This is your life. Maybe that fire is saying, wake the fuck up. Maybe that fire is saying, live fully and wholeheartedly today because this is what you've got. But it's that fire that has certainly informed my entire practice. It's the fire that says, even if you have that fear most humans have or the conditioning to want to play it safe a little bit, let that go and be courageous enough to be fully awake because your time here is short. So I first want to just acknowledge impermanence as an incredible ally. (laughs) And we all have this collective sense of impermanence now with climate change accelerating and all of that. We can try to push that away or we can say, what's the teacher of that? And let it, I'm going to call it a teacher of love because that's what it is. Love invites us to be courageous and expansive. Yeah. And then uh, the topic of meat. Interesting. So I, I spent probably 20 years as a vegetarian and vegan as part of that. And it, it just wasn't the right path for my physical body, actually. But there are so many different motivations people have. And also listeners from different orientations. I remember from being vegetarian, for instance, have really, really strong um, belief systems and feelings around this. So I'll just share what I'm sharing as one perspective. You know, I think to each their own in terms of what path feels true for you. Often in Buddhism, there's just, as one of the precepts is about not causing harm, there's a notion of avoiding eating meat for that. But there are also many spiritual traditions and, you know, animism, the recognition of the consciousness in all of life and all of life and nature as our ally and even shamanic pathways that would have a, a different take And so, for instance, today I'm a conscious omnivore, and uh, there is a way that my personal, and I say conscious, and that it's not something to just be perhaps casual about, but the recognition of life cycle and uh, a different relationship with um, the web of life than perhaps I had when I was uh, vegetarian. Does that make some sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I was a vegetarian for a few years uh, as well. And uh, it came into conflict with my love of travel. Uh, that was, I came to a point where I was like, well, I can travel around the world or I can be a vegetarian, but I don't want to be this guy who gets invited to someone's house for dinner and is all picky about what I eat. Like, I just can't be that guy, you know? I remember traveling in Thailand when I was a vegetarian and getting, um, I spent a year traveling around the world and I was doing this amazing thing of studying intentional communities around the Mm -hmm. country and around the world back then, just really fascinated by like what, makes a sustainable community and what how do humans actually live together in community in ways that work because we see so much of what doesn't work right Right. anyway i remember 
like them honoring my presence at this tiny village um, in northern Thailand by digging up a bunch of termites out of the trunk of a tree. And I remember being like, it would just feel so, so dishonoring to life and to connection and to this unique meeting between me and these peoples. If I was like, I'm a vegetarian, I'm not eating these termites. Termites is an odd thing for anyone to eat in my culture, (laughs) but it was a kind of beautiful exchange. Yeah. Yeah. You could have claimed to be a termitarian. (laughs) Wish I had thought of that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So uh, a couple of things I I made notes here that I wanted to, to get you to, uh, expand upon. First of all, the concept of spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a phrase that I've heard a lot, but I wonder if you'd explain what you mean by that. Sure. Spiritual bypass turns uh, points to using our spiritual practices and philosophies to turn away from that which makes us uncomfortable, to turn away from pain rather than to uh, let our practices, I might say, alchemically heal (laughs) our pain, uh, bring into wholeness what we're uncomfortable with. And so in today's world, when there's so much stirred, that's uncomfortable, that's outside of our comfort zone, uh, so much passed down from prior generations, that's messy and ugly. Uh, I encourage people to be aware of using spirituality to bypass. Yeah. And so part of, yeah, go on. Well, no. So, so how is it different from just straight up denial and avoidance? I would say it's very related to denial and avoidance, but for instance, there might be uh, certain ways spiritual spirituality is used to justify um, notions like, um, transcend difficulty and Mm. just get to the light and keep it light and stay positive by pushing away the negative and things that I simply don't experience as paths to wholeness in any way, shape or form. Right. Right. And that gets back to, to what I was saying at the beginning, how I feel like your approach to this is so much more, um, balanced than, than what I've often found in, in that you're, there's so much of this power of positive thinking and, and, you know, just cleanse your mind of the darkness. It's like, no, the darkness is interesting. There's good shit in there. You know, shit is dark. I mean, shit is, (laughs) what's the difference between shit and rich earth? You know, it's kind of the same thing. Yes, I just want to interject one of my favorite green architects and artists in the world, the late Hundervasser from Austria, wrote this phenomenal piece many years ago called The Shit Culture, in which he just acknowledges like all the nuances of the psychological and emotional and spiritual impact of a culture pushing away uh, their shit and their waste and not understanding, as you're saying, humus the soil, the dirt of life. So, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I I remember speaking to a woman years ago on the podcast who was an expert in soil carbon cycles. And we were in Topanga near LA. And and she was like, look, 
all the, the human shit from Los Angeles gets pumped into the ocean where it totally messes up the ecosystem of the ocean. And meanwhile, we're losing topsoil that could be rebuilt with that shit. Like we, we're flushing down the toilet, the very thing that we need in, in the mountains, in the yards, in the forest. It's like, it's just this crazy system that we have in place. It's mind blowing. Uh, many people feel that uh, that shit through, for instance, composting toilets and whatnot might be exactly what our soil is desperate for in this time that it's undernourished. Yeah. No doubt. No yeah. Doubt. Yeah. So who, who is Electra? <laughs> That's a great question. In maybe chapter three of the book, I talk about my first few months at the monastery and how I arrived. I was 26. I was thinking I was going to this peaceful place to immediately drop into um, the peace of Zen and instead had to face this angry, fiery uh, part of me who I named Electra because she was electric with anger, who I had literally not been aware of as a part of my psyche up until that time. I had learned so much to push away anger, fire energy. I think many people in our culture have been trained to um, think that anger is bad, dangerous, Especially women. People, especially women. Yeah, you're right. Spiritual people shouldn't be angry. I had learned to um, push that down and away. And just like the trash conversation, the shit conversation we were just having, there is no away. Our personal trauma, our intense emotions, our ancestral trauma, it's just here to be healed. It comes up to be healed because we have that natural capacity in our beings, we're big enough is the phrase I want to use to let it to to heal it to heal it. But it, at that point, it was pretty um, hard for me to be at this silent environment with this very kind of hot energy coming through. And so I talk about how you know first I just tried to kind of push it down as I always had apparently, and then had a conversation with my teacher where I brought it up kind of expecting her to judge that. And instead she said, Hey, this part of you is desperate for a friend. This part of you has probably never been met in your life with compassion, with complete acceptance. You've probably never let this energy pulse through your body completely without judging it, like be here fully and embody it. So spend time with this one, spend time with Electra, like, you know, dig in the garden with her, go on walks with her. I took it on as a practice to really, without any judgment, get to know that energy. And it completely transformed me. It was a deep experience of shadow work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Do you think yeah. you would have met that part of yourself if you had not gone to the monastery? Would she have made her presence known in some other way? I suspect she would have. Uh, just because I seem to be wired for transformation. So I suspect she would have come up in some form. But, you know, as I did that work with her, I got a real clear sense that a lot of that energy was ancestral for me. Right. 
Uh, and that was important to me to get what my ancestors had been through to, to get the rightness of being of that intense energy. I have a very different relationship with anger and all emotions today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like so much disease is an expression of the electras within us who are not given voice. And so they come out through digestive disorders or sexual disorders or skin diseases or cancer. I mean, so much, I mean, I, and I'm not denying there's there are mechanistic things going on behind these as well in, in many cases, but I don't know if you've ever heard of John Sarno, who was a, a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. He taught at Columbia University Medical School, very accomplished surgeon. And um, he was doing all these back surgeries, uh, tens of thousands of back surgeries. And he started to notice that some of his patients, when he would, uh, you know, people came in for, for diagnosis, he found that people had herniated discs and people had pain, but there were lots of people with herniated discs who didn't have any pain. And there were people with pain who didn't have herniated discs. And he started to think, oh my God, what have I been doing? These surgeries are, are like a placebo. Uh, and, and the effectiveness of the surgery is the placebo effect. I'm, I'm hacking his, his insights terribly here, but he wrote a book called Mind Over Back Pain that was really interesting because what he found was that when he started to understand that the back pain was an expression of psychological trauma or discomfort or fear or, or maybe ancestral trauma, and he would explain this to his patients, over 70% of them, the pain went away the next day and never came back. You know, it's the body will... Electra will be heard one way or another. Yes, and I would just add that I think especially uh, what I'm calling fire energy is one that hasn't really been given its right place within the dominant paradigm today. Again, we've seen so much misuse of that energy in a paradigm of power over um, that people tend to be really afraid of it. And then numb it out or try to diminish it instead of acknowledging, you know, we talked about Eros and life force vitality earlier. It's a great source of life force vitality. So the weekly Sangha I guide is called the fierce compassion Sangha. And it's that recognition of the balance between the deep peace and stillness of presence and the dynamism of all the energies that we embody. Yeah. So yeah. how to live with them all in presence. And that's the thing. I mean, this this sort of connects to our earlier conversation about desire and sexuality. Electra is really sexy. And if Electra yes. has no presence, it seems very difficult for sexuality to to be vital because that wildness and anger and uh, you know, unwillingness to just shut up and go away is the essence of a healthy sexuality, I think. You've got it. And so many people try instead to control their wildness, <laughs> the wilderness within. And it's, it's really, really sad because yeah. I feel that we all need that energy from 
one another and also our world needs it, I believe, just our full aliveness. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you've talked about some of the great gifts that you received during your time as a monk, um, but I couldn't help notice that you, you almost died uh, <laughs> because of the sort of rigidity and I would say close-mindedness of the monastery as well. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. And let me put it in this context. One of the messages of this book is an invitation for us to recognize how habitual hierarchical perception is and to open to, in a sense, the darkness, the elemental darkness, awareness itself that is free of hierarchical perception. But that's an a choice, a possibility for all of us to live in. And so I talk a lot about hierarchy and just the, the weird hierarchical dynamics, even within most uh, spiritual communities. And so there's light and shadow in every community. Uh, and so the monastery, for instance, where I trained was a phenomenal place in so many ways. And it um, made space for so much healing for me i'm i don't have words for the gratitude and it also carried shadow and part of the shadow which exists in many spiritual communities is about a legacy of hierarchy where there's particular relationships uh, the teacher the higher ups a kind of confusion around discipleship that maybe was a beautiful thing hundreds or thousands of years ago in a different cultural context and now can get confused uh, in many ways. And we all hear all the time, the listeners have their own uh, evidence of this, of power abuse in spiritual communities. I heard of two examples just this past week. So there's this light and shadow. So where I trained, I actually wasn't so aware of the shadow. I felt it, but no one named it. And we lived in a silent context. So this was the shadow of the silence. There was a very hierarchical power structure. And um, even simply to, you know, as a monk, at least for a period of time, but you're really giving up everything and giving up, in a sense, your internal authority to kind of let ego be stripped away more. At times that happens skillfully and at times not. So there are examples that I shared where, for instance, I wrote a note, because that's how we communicated, about um, a bite I had gotten that felt really odd to me and painful. It was actually a Black Widow bite, but the higher-up who responded decided, no, uh, I think it's perfectly fine, so just sit with it. Which did, is, they, did they look at you? Was there an examination or was it just? Yeah, yeah, there was an examination. And uh -huh. this was just some, someone's uh, poor uh, judgment who happened to be in a position of power. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was it wasn't until I got really, really sick from this black widow bite that I was finally rushed to the doctor. The doctor said, you nearly died from this, that kind of thing. And I did share other examples that were similar. Something underlying it is just this recognition that um, I had at that time in my practice, 
let Zen become too rigid. And this is what I said earlier about anyone doing any spiritual practice in relationship with any teacher or any community has to stay in touch with their own internal authority. And I had left that for a while. And many of the monks did. Because you, of, yeah, go on. How do you distinguish between your own internal authority, which is clearly a healthy, you know, self-protective uh, presence, mm -hmm. and ego? Yeah, it's a really great question you're asking. Because um, one of the gifts, for instance, in the early part of training is kind of surrendering the your ability to be in control so literally to post a note to ask can i go see a doctor to post a note to say hey i think i need a new toothbrush <laughs> that might sound really wild to listeners but there's a way in which it's relieving because it helps someone to see especially if you grew up in an individualistic world egocentric world how often there's things we think we need that we don't, I need this or want this right now to be okay. <laughs> Everyone can investigate that for themselves and can uncover a lot of, um, can have a lot be revealed about how not free we are from the conditioned mind's sense of what it needs externally to be okay. You with yeah. me so far? Yeah. But beyond that, um, there's an invitation as we become more and more centered in practice, which resting in distilled, spacious presence, letting again this peeling away of the conditioned mind happen, it reveals the authority of the heart, which a lot of people can't even hear. If you want to know why I spent so much time in silence, because silence creates the field for us to actually hear our own heart and live from that place. So that's part of the light of monastic training. The shadow was the hierarchical structure would get in the way of me recognizing authority of the heart. And I didn't step into what I call true authority until I left. Yeah. And today, because I'm a Dharma teacher today, I teach in such a different way from my teachers. I teach on the topic of exploring shared power instead of power over in almost everything we do. Uh, I just could never step into that kind of role where pedestals were in place. That makes sense? Yeah. 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 When I was reading that section of the book, and I, I don't mean to do some dime store psychology on you here, but uh it it read to me very much as this sort of coming of age experience for you, where you embraced the authority um, as a way to to learn and to sort of separate yourself from your ego and your childish impulses, and and then you you know, through that experience and some other experiences that also involved your health, you started to feel like, oh, no, no, I need to take control of my own destiny here, which is no doubt painful. It, it sounded very much like the sort of differentiation that children go through with their parents. And it made me think of your father as having been your first sort of spiritual teacher. 
And if maybe there was some um, displacement of your, your love for your father onto your love for the monastery and the experience and the, the embrace that you felt there. I think there's something there for sure in what you're pointing to. Uh, so some way that uh, projection, and I think for so many of us, until we really own our projections, like who are we putting on a pedestal above us? How often is there a pedestal? And um, so I think there's something in what you're speaking of and some rites of passage I needed to go through around that time. And many of the other monastics as well, who I trained with, interestingly enough. And I would also just suggest it's a trippy topic, that whole topic of internal authority, because a lot of people are confused. They think the mind of separation is the authority. They're being, they don't even have the choice to, to right. listen to their hearts. They think the news is the authority. They think the shit they're reading is the authority. They think a parent or leader. And so there's a way that there's this incredible opportunity and it's about learning to deeply listen and actually live in deep listening. That's a relaxing place to hang out that we also get to be guided by uh, the authority of presence. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But as you say, it's a very difficult, I mean, it's a relaxing place to hang out, but it's not an easy place to get to because you're, you're, you're picking one quiet voice out of a cacophony of screams, you know, but here's what's so interesting. In my experience, it, it never feels like one quiet voice and a cacophony of screams because the cacophony of screams, as you practice, it just becomes clearer and clearer. You recognize the just the vibration of that. Like you might recognize the vibration of some BS you're hearing on the news as ultimately not true. You just know how to recognize truth and not truth in a much simpler way. And the, the still small voice within, maybe this goes back to the power of receptivity, it's still, it's quieter, but it's badass. It's speaking mm. truth. So you know it, you can recognize it. it mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, last question. Uh, sure. Speaking of, of badasses, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about uh, Ramada or is it Ramada? Ramada. Mm -hmm. Ramada. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the gifts of this life has just been the right teacher showing up at the right time again and again. And uh, I'm sure many listeners can relate to that. And it's certainly been my experience. So when I began training at the monastery, my teacher generously encouraged me to connect with uh, maybe an ally of hers, a teacher named Walter McKitchen, who worked with all of the monks, who channeled a Tibetan master named Ramadan. I had never before worked with a channeler of any kind. I'd grown up in LA where I learned to kind of have a uh, uh, healthy questioning attitude towards stuff that might be super woo-woo or whatever but of course he was the real deal <laughs> first time i sat down with him it became crystal clear that this uh, being could see into me through me from the cellular level to personality to 
through deep time. And so he was a teacher of mine as well for about the next 15 years till he died. And he uh, played an important part in this exploration and calling in darkenment. And I talk a lot about it in the book, but um, really helping me open to and trust a natural capacity I had, and I believe most humans have, to be rather attuned to the more than human world, the invisible world. We are conditioned to think what we see is what we get, and the human world is the uh, primary world, and it's just not so, yeah? So there's a lot I could say about him. He was a, a dear friend and a teacher for years. So I lived silently at the monastery, but would visit with him um, maybe once a season. And then when I left the monastery, spent quite a bit more time with him. And he was also just a, a great, ridiculously humorous human. Yeah. When you, when you say he, are you referring to Walter or Ramada? You know, um, both, actually. Uh, both were teachers and friends, I would say. But maybe because Ramada came through a male voice, I tend to refer to him as he. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And, and in a, a case like that, where um, a, a spirit or a, an actual historical figure is being channeled... Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When the person who's channeling that essence, when they, when they die physically, does that essence, I mean, I'm, I'm not assuming you're an expert in, in this sort of thing and mediums and all that. Um, but does that essence then find someone else to be channeled through? You know, that's a great question. And I'm sure it varies depending on the, uh, the being, but yeah. I will say that uh, I, I learned early on, my dad died when I was 11, you know, that uh, we can open our hearts to uh, a natural capacity to connect with those who have passed uh, if they want to. And so I have maintained a connection with both Walter uh, and the consciousness we might call Ramada, though I, I really miss them being accessible in the ways they used to. This is a much more few and far between, but still a connection. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I hope listeners won't think that I'm skeptical about this because I've, I've had experiences myself where I feel that, um, yeah, definitely something going on beyond the realm of, material reality or one dimensional flat space and all that. I've, I've talked about some of those. I have a, a very close friend who was sort of my mentor in graduate school, who's uh, one of the world's leading researchers of parapsychology. Mm. And uh, he's worked with psychic healers and, and mediums and, and shamans all over the world, and written a bunch of books about them. Mm. Uh, so I should ask him about that, whether Ramada might uh, appear somewhere else. So maybe I think can, it's a great question. You can yeah. catch up. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, Listen, Eden, thank you so much. I don't, I don't want to take more of your time. Um, I really appreciate this. And uh, I just want to encourage people who enjoy this conversation to listen to your episode with Anya Kotz on A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Uh, I guess that'll be released somewhere around the same time as this one. I'm so looking forward to both being shared. And, you know, I just want to go back to something we touched on in the very beginning. Um, you, you mentioned Bobby, and I dedicated this book actually to, to both Bobby and to Ramadan, this teacher. And so just want to name for the, the audience that um, my mom, uh, when I was about age six, became a, a social justice activist in LA doing incredible work, one of my heroes, and took a lot of um, marginalized youth who have been handed a really shit set of circumstances and politics uh, under her wing. And one of them was a, an incredible young black man named Bobby. And uh, we watched him get put into prison for nothing he did and kept in prison for 25 years under the three strikes rule, which uh, many people know about, luckily no longer exists. And it was painful and um, horrifying. And so we advocated and did all we could to help him get out and also watched him navigate that experience uh, with a tremendous inner light, I would say, tremendous strength and uh, and uh, courage and honesty. And I just want to share that during the process of writing the book, just before uh, we heard from Stanford's, um, can't remember if the committee or institute on the three strikes rule, that they were finally able to help him get out, which was incredible. Um, he, he, suffered a, um, a horrible injury there in prison injustice and essentially died. And uh, it was a, a real loss and happened during the writing of the book. And mm. Bobby was an incredibly warm human. So I just wanted to name him in all this. My name is Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's, and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Heading for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal It doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play 
Into the ground. 